I was saying to myself, you know what, if they fire me, maybe this is the best thing that will happen because right now I work on my research, work my ass off day and night. They fire me, I'll retire, I'll sit on the beach in the Bahama with the tequila and say, thanks God they fired me, I'm now enjoying life and not working in the lab. Trying to look at the silver lining. Feeling lost? Then you're in the right place. I'm Amanda Knox. And I'm Christopher Robinson. And this is Labyrinths. Before Italy, I didn't give much thought to the cognitive biases that shape how we all make sense of the world. Most of us don't think much about it, but the fact is, our brains are lazy. Evolution pressured us to take cognitive shortcuts whenever possible. These shortcuts allow us to make snap decisions that can improve our chances of survival. But that also means that how we perceive and process the world, how we think and judge and categorize, is often not rational. I learned about people's cognitive biases the hard way. I know better than most how people can keep believing something even when all the evidence points the other way. Our cognitive biases are so deeply ingrained that even when we're aware of them, we still fall prey to them. But surely the experts are more rational. The detectives and forensic scientists and doctors who must make careful decisions with life and death consequences. Uh, Not so much. In fact, those with the most expertise seem more likely to get angry when forced to confront their own biases. Enter Dr. Etl Dror a cognitive neuroscientist who specializes in how we perceive, interpret, and draw conclusions about information. His work has earned him many admirers, myself included, but also quite a few enemies. We've known for decades that people are not rational and that people are systematically not rational. My contribution in the last decade is showing that scientists, forensic scientists and other experts, they too suffer from these biases and make mistakes even when they do so-called objective scientific evaluations. And how did you come into that specific narrow vision? I was doing research uh, with the U.S. Air Force on pilot decision-making, and then I got an email from a fingerprint examiner saying, we do very similar work to what pilots are doing when they have to recognize aircraft and decide if it's friendly or not, and Mm -hmm. we do it in different orientation, and this is what fingerprint examiners do. And I said, okay, come and talk to me. And we're having this great conversation about the cognitive challenges in making those judgments until I say that pilots, if they expect an enemy plane to come from a certain part of the sky, they're more likely to make a mistake because they're expecting to see certain aircraft. And he said, no, we forensic examiners are immune to bias. You're not affected by context. (laughs) And I couldn't believe it. I said, what are you saying? Let's collect data. And he said, you're wasting your time. Forensic examiners only make the decision on the fingerprint. And he and I took a bunch of fingerprints to a bunch of examiners who testified in court. It's a match, 100% a match. I can't be wrong. And gave the same fingerprint to the same examiners. Now, causing an expectation it's not a match. This was the genius of Dr. Dror's study design. 
To figure out if fingerprint examiners were being affected by extraneous factors, he needed to alter the context, but hold one variable, the judgment of whether a print was a match, constant. So he went back into old cases, and for each of the international experts who took part in the study, he gave them copies of prints they themselves had marked as matching years prior. But this time, he altered the extraneous case information around the prints, putting them into the context of a known wrongful conviction. It's easy to think that other information shouldn't matter. Fingerprints are all unique, right? They either match or they don't. Way back in 1892, at the dawn of forensic science, English polymath Sir Francis Galton estimated the odds of finding two identical prints at one in 64 billion. But while it's true that our fingerprints are incredibly unique, most prints examined in a criminal context are latent prints, impressions lifted off objects, which means they are usually distorted, partial, or otherwise degraded. And there's no accepted scientific standard for how many points of similarity are required to label two prints a match. Which means that a fingerprint examiner's job is often to judge whether a partial smudge lifted from a crime scene matches a carefully inked print. Dr. Dror saw that there was a lot of room for bias to creep in there. And sure enough, when he gave these international experts prints they had previously matched, but now with a new context, most of them said the fingerprints do not match. And mm. that's how I started to get in forensic science. There was a lot of pushback, which still goes on today, too. How would you say your work intersects with the problem of wrongful convictions? There are two pieces of evidence that are the most convincing. One is forensic science, and the other one is confession. And those two interact with one another, because when they come to someone and say, we have forensic evidence against you, they're more likely to confess. Right. And if the forensic examiner knows that the person confessed, they're more likely to see that the evidence match when actually it does not. So this is the bias snowball effect, and it's very powerful in convicting wrongful people. And I would like to say the opposite too, and not convicting guilty people. Mm -hmm. It's not only about convicting innocent, it's about letting people who are guilty walk free. Have you looked at other areas of forensic science and examined how cognitive bias plays into the work of those examiners? From my perspective, once you show it with fingerprint examiner, it applies to all domains. We're talking mm. about basic cognitive architecture, how our expectation impacts our judgment, but they always try to avoid it. So I showed it in fingerprint, so the DNA people said, that's in fingerprint, not in DNA. <laughs> so we showed it in DNA. So then the forensic anthropology said it's in fingerprint and in DNA, but not in forensic anthropology and firearms and handwriting, domain after domain. We've shown it again and again. We call it the bias blind spot. Yes, there is a problem with others, not in my domain. Mm -hmm. Initially, they always resist. And... I understand why they resist, because when experts usually make a mistake, we know about it. So if the doctor does a mistake and amputates the wrong leg, they learn about it. Here in the forensic domain, they make a judgment. Usually the person confesses. In the United States, 95% is plea bargained. It's not even yeah. challenged in court. So they don't even know if they make a mistake. They never get mm. uh, feedback. So... 
the court accepts them and has accepted them for a hundred years or more blindly with no data, no research, and suddenly somebody comes and tells them, well, you're making mistakes, I understand the defensive response. And also they very much live in the adversarial legal system. And they always ask me, are you a supporter of forensic science or a critique? I'm not a supporter, I'm not a critique. I don't think in those adversarial lines are you a support of law enforcement or of human rights. There's two levels of pushback. Uh, one is when they go after you personally. People tell you they're attacking you personally, take it as a compliment because they can't attack the science, mm. but it's still not pleasant when people call you names and write nasty personal things about you. In the fingerprint, when it came out, I followed all the chatbots. And in one of the chatbots, somebody said, I don't like Dr. Draw. He's not a nice person, so I don't accept his research. <laughs> and I couldn't resist. And I wrote back, I said, I may be an asshole or a Mother Teresa, but what has that got to do with the science, right? <laughs> in fact, you're proving my research. <laughs> That's contextual information. That's not relevant. <laughs> and then also professionally, they... Uh, go, uh, again, in a very nasty way. For example, they write letters to the editor in fingerprints. And I'm not talking about one crazy person, but the chair of the fingerprint society writes a letter to the journal saying fingerprint examiners are immune from bias. And if Dr. Dwarf found any fingerprint examiner that can make a mistake and is affected by context, and I'm quoting, should go and work in Disneyland and not be a forensic examiner. Wow. So this is the level of the arrogance that they had. Hmm. And, and it was unpleasant, but it's so important. We talk about innocent people potentially going to jail and guilty people not only not going to jail, but continue to commit the crime because they're not uh, in jail. As the Innocence Project in New York showed that cases where people were wrongfully convicted for rape the rapist not only didn't go to jail, but continued to commit sexual assault yeah. during that period. So they get very personal, very nasty, but almost all the forensic domain have taken it on board, including in the United States, the Department of Justice, the National Institute of Standards and Technology. So all of them have taken it on board. It took a few years. The only ones who are still fighting it are the forensic pathologists still uh, have a problem in thinking about those issues. Dr. Dror isn't kidding about facing huge resistance to his research, but no pushback he's dealt with in the past has been as extreme as the most recent controversy. It all started with a paper he published in February 2021. The paper studied bias in a new domain, forensic pathology. What exactly is a forensic pathologist? A forensic pathologist is someone who performs autopsies of people who've died under suspicious or questionable circumstances. Their work can be used as evidence in court, so the accuracy of their findings is critical. So this paper, first of all, is the first paper ever to examine bias in forensic pathologists. And I need to emphasize when I say bias, I mean cognitive bias. I don't mean racism, sexism, intentional. I mean like love is blind, right? When you're in love, you see things differently, how your emotions affect you without awareness. So I'm not accusing any forensic examiners of intentionally being biased. Now, in my study in forensic pathologists, I wanted to see how much their decision 
whether someone died from an accident or homicide or suicide or natural, is based on medical information, which are highly trained and competent, or on information that is irrelevant to the medical examiner. It may be relevant to the police and the judge and the jurors, but the medical examiner needs to make decisions based on medical information. In Dr. Dror's study, 150 forensic pathologists were shown data about a toddler who died in the hospital. In one variation, the child was white and had been brought to the hospital by their grandmother. In another, the child was black, and the person who'd brought them was their mother's boyfriend. The pathologists were tasked with determining the manner of death. The results were overwhelming. All this information that shouldn't affect a decision of whether the toddler really injured themselves as a result of an accident or homicide and found a huge impact. So when we gave information that the child is black and brought to the hospital by the mother's boyfriend, they don't believe the story that it's an accident. But when they get identical medical information, but the child is white and brought to the hospital by the grandmother, the vast majority accept that it is an accident and not homicide. Wow. Mm. From my point of view, this research is almost boring because it's phenomena that has been shown not only in fingerprints and in DNA. It's been shown with medical doctors and bankers and HR and police officers and every person on the planet. So I'm not breaking new scientific ground, to be honest. I wish I was. I was not surprised at all. But uh, everybody else almost on the planet, and especially the forensic pathologists, were not only surprised, they denied, they wanted the paper to be retracted, they sent letters to the editor with dozens of people, they filed multiple complaints against me to my university, and in a way, they've attracted attention to this research, because how many people read scientific articles? Not many, but fighting it caused tens of thousands to look at the paper. So even from a PR point of view, the last thing you do is go and attack the researcher. It just brought more attention. It has been very coordinated, strong attack. I said to myself, if I go down, I'm going to go down fighting. And at some stage, I wasn't sure I'm going to win the war. When Dr. Dror's paper on forensic pathologists came out, the backlash was stronger than ever before. It was and still is a very organized campaign. They filed uh, complaints. They complained about anything you can imagine. (laughs) Destroying it, they're hoping something will stick to the wall. They complained about everything, the design, the statistical analysis, the participants, whether we had ethical approval, how we recruited participants, anything you can think about. These days, if you get a formal complaint from a national association of medical examiners, they take it very seriously. So they investigate it and they find the complaint has no merit. You know what they do? They filed a complaint again at another organization, and then it's dismissed. So they do it again, again and again. They filed, they believe, eight complaints. So it's almost, if you ask me, on the verge of dishonesty, if you file a complaint Mm. and it's investigated, 
and dismissed and you file it again with the same claims and it's dismissed, you just do it again and again. Sooner or later, like the lottery, you may get lucky, but luckily all the complaints have been totally dismissed. But I find it a bit astonishing talking about basic science. Now, it's not an academic argument about some theoretical model of brain function. This really sends innocent people to jail or people who commit horrific homicide, murder of children, going free. And it's time that the forensic pathologists take it on board. I hope they will, <laughs> but uh, I'm not sure. Because when it came out, I said, bring me to your conference. You don't have to pay me. And let's have a panel. Bring anyone you want and we'll discuss it. And they said, no, we're not interested in having this discourse. Wow. I said, come and tell me where I'm wrong. Let's have a debate. Just not willing to have this discussion. And that's very sad, personally, but more professionally. What they attacked the paper is that we manipulated two variables. We manipulated the race of the child and who brought them to the hospital. And they're afraid that they will be accused that they did it based on the race of the child. But mm. it seems it's easier for them to say, yes, depending who brought the baby to the hospital, we can decide that it's homicide if it's a mother's boyfriend. And if it's a grandmother, it's an accident. They find that more legitimate or more palatable, I guess, because of political views or mm. because racism is such a hot topic. From my perspective, the research question is, does information that is non-medical impact their decision, number one? Number two is to have transparency, at least if the forensic pathologist says, look, based on the medical information, I cannot determine. But because mm. the mother's boyfriend brought him to the hospital, I'm going to say homicide. <sighs> but if it was a grandmother, I would say it's an accident. I find it very bad, but at least they're transparent about it. The problem is that it's hidden and given mm. under the presumption of medical findings. Have you ever been impacted at the level of your university job before? Well, I had two hearings at uh, the university. I'm at uh, University College London. It's one of the top 10 universities uh, in the world, and they're very strict, you know, and follow procedures. And even though I had no doubt that things were on my side, it was a, a very unpleasant experience. This was worse than any cross-examination I had mm. in court. They asked very difficult questions. The complaint was very nasty and personal because they didn't say... We think Dr. Dror may have made statistical errors in his analysis. They said, oh, Dr. Dror made terrible statistical mistakes. Even a junior uh, staff member wouldn't make it. It's an embarrassment to your university, an embarrassment mm. to science. They said it in such a nasty, personal way. I said, so what can happen the worst? In contrast to some of my co-authors, which are early in their career, and they just finished medical school not long ago, and they have young families, and they have student loans. If they get fired, it's a very different story. And they went through very unpleasant mm. emotional pressure, worse than I did, because there were complaints filed against them as well. So the article has seven authors. Four of them are forensic pathologists. And there were complaints against the four forensic pathologists where their career depends. I live in the ivory tower. I'm in the end of my career. I, I'm relatively immune. 
and I suffered so much. So imagine some of my colleagues and my co-authors, the brave forensic pathologist, four out of the seven who joined the research and wrote the article together with me that they had complaints, ethical complaints filed against them. It clearly sounds like the people who were attacking you and your colleagues were not coming from a place of professionalism. They had taken your study incredibly personally and were reacting in an incredibly irrational way. We can expect that from regular people out in the world. People don't like being told they're wrong, but we we expect something more from professional scientists. Why is it so hard for professional scientists to recognize and acknowledge evidence of their own cognitive biases? That's a great question. It's not only that some forensic pathologists, and you can see letters to the journal where there's like 80 of them signing, but the president of the National Association of Medical Examiner, they're the one who complained against me. They're not only professionals, they're the leadership of the domain. They should have said, look, maybe Dr. Droz's research is faulty, it has weaknesses, which it does, every research has weaknesses, but it's an important topic and let us think about it. The leadership put fuel to the fire rather than leading the professional organization. I guess they're humans, experts are human and scientists are human and you spent your career believing you're doing the right thing and suddenly somebody pulls the carpet under your feet it's very difficult. The fingerprint examiner who approached me and read the article with the U.S. Air Force, he said we're immune. And when we did the research I told you about and the results came, you know what he did? He wanted to resign from being a forensic examiner. I said, why? He said, I've been doing it for 25 years. My kids are proud of me. I thought I never make mistakes. And now, oh my God, you're telling me. And I said, no, the problem is not so big. Nobody's perfect, and if we acknowledge our weaknesses, we can get better. So I understand the response. I do understand when somebody, an outsider, that's why I wanted to have forensic pathologists co-author the paper with me. So it's not only cognitive scientists, they've been doing it for decades, they're hardworking, they're not aware of their biases, so they get uh, very defensive. But again, you expect more from scientists, and you expect more from people who can send innocent people to jail, can not send guilty people. So you have the responsibility to get beyond uh, your emotions. But hopefully, after they calm down, they'll be able to sit and consider and have a professional discussion. This is, in my view, part of the problem of the entire criminal justice system. No system is perfect. Even systems that are great need to reflect and improve themselves all the time. This is part of getting better. And I find systematically that the criminal justice system and law enforcement are extremely defensive. They don't like to take criticism and to change and evolve unless they're almost forced to when the public opinion and all what we see happening. But generally, if they would improve and be open to hear criticism, some of it is good criticism, some of it may be wrong criticism, but not willing to improve and reflect all the time is part of the problem. It's interesting, too, because I think what your research ultimately shows 
is not that there are evil forensic scientists out there who are like evilly giving wrong results. It's that there's subconscious factors that are going on that are not in their control. And that's resulting in mistakes. And yet they take that which is really actually a kind of exonerating piece of information and take it as an attack on their character. And they act like you are attacking them in their work when really you're saying, look, I'm just telling you that, like, if you are making mistakes, it's not even really your fault. (laughs) Absolutely. It's not about character. It's not. It's the architecture of the brain. I wish the problem with people who intentionally make mistakes and are biased because then it's a small problem. It's easy to find relatively and easy to fix. The problem that I'm talking about affects all experts and it's harder to find because it's implicit cognitive bias. And I always explain when I train forensic examiners that for me as a cognitive scientist, I have no academic interest in people who are intentionally biased or who are incompetent. That's not interesting. What's interesting to me is why smart people do stupid things, why hardworking, dedicated experts make mistakes without their awareness. And if they would only listen and be willing to get into a discourse, they would find that I'm not their enemy, I'm actually their friend. But they're so emotional, they can't hear at this stage. But to be optimistic, the fingerprint examiner, the DNA examiner, and so on, have taken it on board and accepted it, including a variety of organizations in the United States and Canada and Europe and Australia and China and all over the world. So hopefully the forensic pathologists will be on board. And some of them are on board. The fact is that they had four forensic pathologists co-author that paper. We have a new paper coming out. I've been invited to train forensic pathologists in the United States. So there are places where they're opening up, but it's a long uphill battle and and quite painful. All this talk about bias in forensic science might have you feeling a little disheartened. Are we all so afflicted with cognitive bias that we can't even trust scientific experts? Not necessarily. There are strategies that can minimize bias, both for forensic scientists and for us in our everyday lives. Yeah, there are two very simple things. Part number one, when possible, not to expose experts to information they do not need, irrelevant contextual information. For example, we did research in the United States and found that fingerprint examiners, where they're comparing fingerprints, 40% of the time they know if the suspect has a criminal record. Why do they know if the suspect has a criminal record or not? This is step number one, when possible, to take out that information. So in the forensic pathology domain, if you do an autopsy, you cannot take away information about the race of the child because you see it. But who brought the child to the hospital? And if the dad has a criminal record or not, is important for the police, but not to the forensic pathology. So in every forensic domain, the experts should get only the relevant information. That's number one. Number two, 
we have a technique called linear sequential unmasking, LSU. Linear sequential unmasking says you're going to look at the information in a certain order. And the order is really important. Not only you remember certain things more than other, but the initial information gives you idea, hypothesis, what is going on. And that impacts how you look at subsequent information. The principle is start with the better information. What is better is the more objective information, the more relevant information, and the less biasing information. So if you're looking into a case and you have eyewitnesses and you have a video, a video is more objective than eyewitnesses, we want you to hear the eyewitnesses, but start, first of all, with a more objective the video. And if you have a whole range of, of eyewitnesses and some were intoxicated and some were not, start with those who are not intoxicated. Start with the more reliable, objective evidence. That will have more weight. The solutions are quite simple. It's like in the medical domain where they use placebo or double blind or lineup. We also suggest lineup of evidence. I think that once we acknowledge that the bias exists, then you've paved the way for the solutions. The solutions are relatively simple, easy, don't cost money. The problem is the resistance and the pushback. In AA, if you acknowledge that you're an alcoholic, you're halfway there to curing. The problem is you say, I'm not an alcoholic. I just love to drink all day and all night. And I can stop if I want to. I just don't want to. <laughs> so when you're in denial, you can't start the recovery. It's not so complicated. The resistance is a problem. Hmm. Hmm. What would you say to those medical examiners out there who say that they should and indeed must have access to all the information possible in order to make their very specific scientific determinations? Well, I ask him, what do you mean you need all the information, everything? And I say, do you need to know if the suspect, when he was a baby, was breastfilled or bottle-filled. Is that important for you to know? So everybody smiles. Of course not. So it's not all the information. Now we've already established. And now they need to justify and to be transparent. So in the case of my research, are you going to make a different decision based on who brought the child to the hospital? And if they say yes, well, I'm shocked. And I want them to be transparent about it. And we can argue why they do it. And they say, statistically speaking, they're more likely to be murdered if it's a mother's boyfriend. And I say, well, where do you get these statistics? Based on our decisions. Mm -hmm. So it's almost <laughs> a self-fulfilling prophecy that they decide. But even if the statistics is correct, and I have concerns and doubt about the statistics, let's say 80% of the likelihood that if the mother's boyfriend brought to the hospital, it's a murder. And if it's a grandmother, it's only 20%. Great. Even if it's true, you can't apply to a specific case. Right. You can say statistically that correct men are taller than women. But when you give me a height of a person, I'm not going to be able to say if it's a man or a woman only based on the statistical because they're very tall women and they're very short men, let alone send somebody to jail or determine that the child died not of an accident, but homicide based on general statistics, which are questionable to begin with. One more example, which drives me nuts. I talk to police officers and say, why do you stop black men more than white men to search them for illegal drugs and guns? 
They say because statistically, black men are more likely to have illegal guns and drugs. So how do you know that? They say, well, if, if you look at the number of convictions, black men are more convicted than white people. I said that it ever occurred to you that they're more convicted because you stop them more. And the more you stop them, the more you find it, the more they go to jail. And if you don't stop any white people, white people are never going to be convicted. This is an example where it doesn't occur to them how it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, but they're so busy, they work so hard, they don't have time to pull back, relax, and reflect on what they're actually doing. And when I'm forcing them to do it, they do not like it. (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) Well, I'm sorry. I get really excited about your work. A part of me wants to like do a really fun thing, which is to pull back and get super philosophical at this moment and just talk to you about objectivity, subjectivity. Is objectivity a myth? Is it even possible? So we're all bound by our perceptions, by our limited brain and how our brain encodes information. So the objective world, who knows uh, what is out there? We all perceive it based on our experience and our personalities, as well as by our tools, our eyes, our nose, our ears, and uh, our touch, and our sensory modality. So ontologically speaking, ontology is what's actually out there. We don't know. It's all epistemological questions. It's about theory of knowledge, what we know, what can we know, and what mitigates and mediates our perception of reality. But what is the reality out there? Well, I don't have an answer. I have no idea because I'm locked in the same cage that we're all locked, which is the human brain. (laughs) But I can show that different people look at the same thing. It was in the internet a few years ago where there was a woman's dress and some people said it was a gold dress, some people said it's a blue Mm. dress. It was a gold dress, (laughs) for the record. (laughs) Absolutely, I totally agree with you. So again, (laughs) people say we're looking at the same thing and see different things. And we look at things and we don't see things and we see things that are not there. It all has to do with our architecture of the brain And what really exists or not, and so on, is big philosophical questions, which we do not know and cannot know the answer. What I can tell you scientifically is when we remove expectation, you see things more the way they are. I just finished writing a paper that if you want to really taste food, you shouldn't know what you're eating. The minute you know what you're eating, it causes you an expectation. You need to be blindfolded, not know how it looks like, not know what you're eating, and then you have a raw experience. The same thing when I go to the museum, I never take a guided tour. I don't want them to tell me about the painting. I want to look at the painting itself without the explanation to have a raw experience of the painting as much as it is. Now, of course, even that is contaminated by a lot of my brain. But at least I don't want to have an expectation about the story. Then I hear the stories later on because sometimes they help me appreciate the yellow color of Van Gogh when I know how he created the yellow. But initially, I apply linear sequential unmasking to myself. Mm. After I taste the food, I want to know how it was cooked and what I ate. But initially, the raw experience gives you a stronger feeling. 
And you can talk about other domain where you can blindfold yourself and do different things, how the sensory perception changes hmm. in that case. Just last week, I was eating with a bunch of people. We were eating a duck brain. I didn't tell them what we were eating, and everyone said, oh, it's great, lovely. I said, it's a duck brain. They said, oh, my God, this is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that brings to mind Borges. Have you read much Borges? Do you know his story, Pierre Menard, author of the Quixote? No. Super interesting story. The concept is that a Frenchman in the 19th century wants to write Don Quixote. And he doesn't want to just copy the text that Cervantes wrote. He wants to author it himself, word for word, the exact same text. And so he learns 17th century Spanish. He goes and does all the things that Cervantes did. He goes to prison. He has the same experiences. And then he produces the text himself. And Borges, who's making this fictional scenario, then reviews Pierre Menard's version and says, actually, it's far more interesting than Cervantes' version. Which is even word for word exactly which the same. It's word for word identical <laughs> text. But of course, how inventive of this 19th century Frenchman to, you know, <laughs> <laughs> right? And so the context, which is perhaps irrelevant to the central piece of art, which is Don Quixote, changes the experience of that work of art. Um, and you may say that in that broader context, no one's going to jail over this book, right? So I think when we're talking about questions of justice in forensic science, whether or not that contextual information should be included is a different question. But in the meal case, it's interesting to me, you apply linear sequential unmasking to your meal. You will have a different experience if you learn what the food is first, and your anchoring bias will be its production method and uh, its source and how it was cooked and all that before you get the taste, whereas the primacy will go to the taste experience isolated if that's what you do first. But is either one of them necessarily better than the other one? I don't know, though, but like you remember that whole wine experiment, right? Where they were like, is these like fancy pantsy French wines better mm. than these? Like they, the they, they, they talk about how they make aesthetic judgments that they say are objective. And they're like, these French wines are objectively better than these California wines until they do a blind test. And then, whoa, lo and behold, the California wines blow them out of the water objectively. And it's like, what are we talking about here? I give you many examples, but I'll give you a personal example. My mom always used to say about my dad, he judges his food or go not good when we go to a restaurant, depending on the, on the restaurant. So if it's a very fancy, the waiters are super polite, it's really nice plate, they can give him shit. And he says it's <laughs> wonderful. And if he goes to a hole in the wall where the waiters are not dressed and are rude, and you get the most tasty food on the planet, the food doesn't taste nice to him. He's so impacted by the restaurant and the mannerism and so on uh, and so forth. But maybe that means you're not impacted by those other factors. Maybe he really appreciates. Well, I think what Etiel's saying, though, is if you, if you were right? to put him in a blank room and give him two different plates of food without telling him the context around what he would have experienced in the service of that food, he might say, oh, this plate of baba ganoush is way better than this T-bone steak. It goes in both directions, though. Like, if the food is really good, you might judge less harshly the attitude of the waiter 
who was maybe a little snippy or rude or something, right? Depends on the person. Absolutely. It, it's all both ways, but it goes back to the forensic pathology. I want transparency. I don't mind someone going to a fancy restaurant to say, oh, I love the service, I love this, but the food stinks. But the problem is when they think the food tastes better mm. when it's not, and it's really because of the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. So I don't mind if the forensic pathologist or any other expert said, I judge this to be a homicide because the grandmother brought him to the hospital or because he comes from that neighborhood. The problem that this impacts the evaluation of the medical and the context is hidden under the medical. And I can go to a hole in the wall and say, the steak is great, but I hated the place because there were flies and the yeah. waiters were wood. So I can distinguish between them. But when I think and say, no, the steak was bad, regardless, and I'm willing to go to court and testify as an expert, then it's a problem. And someone goes to jail. The chef goes to jail. <laughs> Sometimes the chef should go to jail, but not in this case. Even though we joke about these techniques, they're extremely important. If implemented properly, they'll make it less likely that biased forensic evidence will be used to convict an innocent person. And increase the chances that the real perpetrator of a crime will be found. Dr. Dror has a new paper coming out soon that expands on the research in his original study. The first one had 150 professionals. This one has 250, so even a bigger sample. And it shows the relationship between the autopsy finding and the contextual information and showing that the contextual information can override the Mm. pathology information. It's so strong that if you give them the pathology information first and they make their mind up based on the medical information, and then you give them the opposite context, they will change their mind to fit the context and override. None of us are immune, but we can all strive to counteract our biases. You can find a link to Dr. Dror's latest paper in the episode description. In the meantime, get lost with us. Find us on Twitter, at Amanda Knox. At Man Under Bridge. And if you don't mind, I'm going to take advantage of your recency bias and suggest you leave Labyrinths a five-star review right now while it's fresh in your mind. This episode was written, edited, and sound designed by us, with additional writing by Sophia Gates, editing and sound design by Josh Thane, and theme music by Josh Budo Karp. Speaking of, what do you think of our little studio setup here? It's- it reminds me a bit, and that's a compliment from a, what's the series, a, The Big Bang? Oh, <laughs> good old Big Bang Theory. I watched that in prison, actually. Chris hates that show because he says that it misrepresents nerds and he's a nerd. So, (laughs) yeah, I don't think it actually presents an accurate picture of what that nerd community is really like. I think that if you say that it uh, doesn't represent the nerd community, it's fact proof that you are a nerd (laughs) to say that. (laughs) 